This episode of Fermented Adventure the Podcast is sponsored by Brewskits, handcrafted dog treats made from spent beer grains, oats, barley, and rye. No chemical preservatives, a great source of fiber, and packed with protein. Visit Brewskits.com to see the full selection of treats for your dog and your cat. Receive 15% off your first order by typing in two important words, Fermented Adventure, at checkout. Cheers! Ladies and gentlemen, craft spirit enthusiasts, and those interested in the intoxicating world of craft distilleries, cideries, meaderies, wineries, and the occasional foray into breweries. It's Rich Shane, and welcome to Fermented Adventure, the podcast, where we bring you the fascinating people that are making the mash, fermenting, distilling, bottling, pouring, and delivering to you some of the finest libations in the world. Before we get started, here are a few housekeeping items. Thank you for bringing the podcast into wherever you are and whatever you're doing. We truly are grateful that you've chosen to listen and make us part of your day. It would mean the world to us if you left a five-star review. This helps us climb in the rankings and it makes it easier for others to find us. Don't hesitate to leave us your comments as well. If the podcast didn't meet your expectations, tell us why. We're always striving to improve. You can find us at fermentedadventure.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Fermented Adventure. Email us at fermentedadventure at gmail.com. All right, FA Nation, let's meet our guest. We're here at Old Lion Spirits in Baltimore, Maryland. He's Mark McLaughlin. I'm Rich Shane. Dawn Ranieri's here, and this is Fermented Adventure, the podcast. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. This is, this is exciting for us. Because we really have enjoyed the times we've been in here. You've got this great outdoor space. You've done live music. We were here just a, about a month ago for your anniversary. So that's, that's fantastic. And uh, I guess my question is, how did all this get started, Mark? Uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, it's a story. Um, so our background, so you know, my, my co-founder uh, with this venture, you met Arch Watkins. He couldn't be here tonight, unfortunately. Uh, Arch and I, we go way back to our Navy days. So we used to fly together in the Navy. Uh, that's how we met and became friends. Now, did you guys hit it off in the beginning? Uh, was, there, was there some sort of competitiveness to each other? Or uh, Navy guys, you know, it's like, <laughs> all right, I'm just doing all this reference from Top Gun. Sure, yeah, so yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that you guys got together in the corner and, you know, you're thinking, you know, Vlad Kilmer. So, so yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, so, so have you figured it out yet? That's right. You know, that's right. who's yeah, the yeah. best, right? It, uh, you know, like any movie, there's, uh, it's rooted in truth, but it's, uh, it's a caricature of the truth, you know, so there is certainly, it's a very competitive group, but it's much more like, friendly competitive. Um, but yeah, we got along, I mean, we didn't really know each other that well on active duty, uh, but then we both got off active duty and moved to the mid-Atlantic to Baltimore. We were flying out of a reserve squadron down at Andrews Air Force Base. So essentially, the reason why you ended up in Baltimore was based on being in the reserve squadron? Uh, we had, our civilian careers both brought us to Baltimore. Okay. And it was very convenient that there was a reserve squadron you know, less than an hour away that we could fly with. So we knew each other already, but became really became friends at, you know, in the same squadron. Uh, and we also live three doors down from one another here in Baltimore. So at, at one point in time, there were four squadron mates within one block. Okay. Uh, you know, one guy went to the same neighborhood, went to the neighborhood. Arch liked it. He moved there. I liked it. I moved there. So it was, uh, but that's how we, we got to know each other was the Navy. Uh, and then for the. Uh, now, now you were all, you, you and Arch were pilots. Uh, naval flight officers. Naval, so, I'm sorry. Uh, naval, AD, naval aviators. <laughs> uh, we were the goose. You know, we were the guy with the, okay. uh, with the radar and the weapon system and that sort of thing. The, the, the guys that needed glasses. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> 
But uh, and and that was really what you did, and just you guys flew together and just built built that you know relationship and Absolutely. that bond. Yeah, yeah, with those with that group of people, um, you know, you're you're you spend a lot of time together. Uh, you're deploying together. Uh, you know, obviously, you have a lot of common interests because you know you don't really join that aviation path unless you're really you're kind of into it. So people tend to be very very close. So um, yeah, Arch and I became very close friends. We have another you know mutual group of. 20 people, I'd probably say, that I consider, you know, very close friends from the Navy days. And, um, so, yeah, we, it's just a, it's a tight group. It's a great, it's a special group, and we, and we love it. Where was I going with that? The, well, uh, we were talking group. about now, how did all that, oh, how did that how did, how turn did, into this? The old line spirits, yeah. So, we, in, in between old line and the Navy, Arch and I each had our own civilian careers. So, he was an engineer, uh, which I think he mostly liked. I was an investment banker, which wasn't a good fit for me. I didn't really enjoy it. So after about two years of banking, because flannel or that that yeah, pattern looks better yeah, on you. Years of, years of flannel fit better on me than it's uh, very masculine. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, you know, sitting at a, at a desk, you know, 80, 90 hours a week, it, it just you know, it wasn't for me. Um, learned a lot. I'm glad I did it, but I'm also glad I left. So I left. You know, the, the, I had this itch to start my own business for a long time. Um, and originally I was thinking something in the beer world, you know, because just like spirits, I also love beer, I love wine and, you know, beer is great. It just didn't seem that from a business perspective, the opportunities were as compelling when the time came 2014 or so, uh, that that's when the craft spirits movement was really starting to show, you know, momentum and I love whiskey and it just seemed like, well, Hey, this, you know, of the beer, wine and spirits world, the opportunity to me seemed to be biggest at that time in the spirit side of things. Uh, and also, there's a, I'm a little more drawn to to whiskey than I am other things because there's the romance behind it. You know, you, you, you pour your heart into this product, and then you have to sit there and wait for it for you know, year after year after year. And these barrels, as you know, you guys have seen plenty of distilleries, just the barrels just slowly, you know, maturing. There's there's a romance to that that's hard to match elsewhere, which really kind of drew me in. It's also a massive challenge um, from a business perspective, but at the end, I think it's worth it. Wanted to do something in this field, so I quit the job March of 2014 was going out to Seattle for a wedding uh, that I was in you know, a few days later. And I remember being at my desk and I kind of, I give my two weeks notice and I was Googling, God, there's a lot of breweries in Seattle. There's probably distilleries and I want to start a distillery. So let's just, maybe I'll pop in and see somebody when I'm out there, you know, search Seattle distillery. And the first thing that popped up on the Google search was the American Distilling Institute was having their annual conference in Seattle. Get out of here. So I didn't even know what ADI was at the time, but it's, you know, for those of you listening who don't know it, uh, it's kind of a, uh, an organization that's uh, trying to support the, uh, the ground, the grassroots upswell of distilleries, you know, around the country. So it's, a, it's kind of an organization that you, know, you can go to these conferences. They can tell you, even from the basics to more advanced stuff, you know, whether it's how you produce, how you source product, how you source uh, ingredients, how you, you know, deal with all the regulation, all these things that are you know, really, really helpful to new people in the, in the industry. So I go to that. Even though that conference is designed for newcomers, I was still way out of my depth. Like it was a conference for newbies and I was still feeling like, Oh my God, what have I, I don't know. I, mean, I knew I didn't know what I was doing, but this cemented, like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? So I was a little bit, after day two of the conference, I was feeling a little overwhelmed, realizing why well, I just quit my job. I clearly don't know what the hell I'm doing here. And, uh, you know, having that kind of realization of Bob taking a big step and maybe it was the wrong choice. And, uh, I was sitting on a couch in the lobby of the hotel. I've told you this part of the story before. No, this is new for us. And a gentleman sits down next to me. He's in his 70s and starts chatting me up. And I wasn't really in the mood to talk. Uh, I was feeling, I was in like self-pity mood. But he's the nicest guy in the world. I'm not a jerk. So he talks to me. I say, hey, how you doing, sir? We start chatting. 
Turns out that he owned a distillery called Golden Distillery, which was about 90 minutes north of Seattle, and he was looking to sell it uh, because his business partner slash friend slash neighbor was terminally ill. So they had this business they had started as retirees. They called themselves the Golden Boys, so it was Golden Distillery. It was the smallest thing you can imagine, uh, maybe 2,000 square feet uh, all in, including barrel aging. And uh, they were making this really nice American single malt whiskey, as I would learn later. But really, Bob was talking to me at this conference saying, hey, man, uh, I'm looking to sell my business. You want to buy it? And I, you know, it's almost like you know where the hidden cameras. I'm like, like really? He's like, all right, well, all right, Bob. You know, how, you know, what's your what's your revenue? Like, how many buyers do you have lined up? Am I am I behind in this process? He's like, slow down, slow down. You're the first guy I've told. Did he go to the conference with yes. that in mind? That was why he came down. That was why he came down. Yeah, that was why he came down because he knew that there would be a lot of lost puppies like me looking to start, and this was a great opportunity for a guy like me. And he was looking to offload. It was a perfect place for him to go. And he didn't have to fly to Denver or, you know, Tucson. He could just drive 90 minutes down the road to Seattle. It happened to be right near his distillery. So uh, it was pretty. So when he said all that, uh, he's like, oh, you're the first guy I've told. So he walked in the room, looked around, saw me sitting there by myself. I said, I'll talk to that guy. And, you know, at first I was a little bit turned off to the idea because it didn't fit the paradigm that I had built in my head that I would start something completely from scratch, right? Um, that's what Arch and I were, were planning on doing. And when I met Bob, at first glance, it seemed a little less compelling to me to take somebody else's business and grow it. I'm like, I kind of want to do it on my own. When I saw just what they were doing, how much I love the whiskey, how much of a phenomenal person, you know, Bob, his wife, I I did get to meet Jim, his his business partner. He died shortly thereafter, but him and his wife, amazing people. And it was such a tiny business. It basically was like, it was like starting with a big head start. Like they had, you know, we had a process that we could adopt from them. We had a very small amount, but meaningful to us, amount of aging liquid that we would you know, come with the purchase. And it was putting us on this direction that we didn't anticipate being on, which is making American single malt whiskey. What was the initial direction that you had in your head, or you and Arch talked about, as to where you wanted to go? Bur- making bourbon and rye. Making bourbon and yeah. rye. Yeah, for all the reasons, you know, for the listeners who, who maybe aren't as familiar, you know, Maryland is a very uh, deep rye whiskey you know, heritage. So that was, you know, I love rye whiskey like many people do. So that was drawing us in, both from the perspective of the, the heritage in our state where you know, we're living and operating, and also, uh, you know, rye is just taking off. And then bourbon, because it's an essential American spirit. We love bourbon as well. So American single malt wasn't, I didn't even know what an American single malt was before I met Bob. Very few people did. And uh, I was a little bit, again, uh, it didn't quite fit what I wanted to do or thought I was going to do. But once I processed the opportunity, you know, flew out there, worked with Bob for a couple of days, you know, tasted the whiskey. I, I was sold. It was just, it, it became like, yes, this is what I want to do. And Arch felt the same way. So eventually we raised money from friends and family, mostly Navy guys actually. And we ended up moving out there and living in Bob's guest house and apprenticing. And when we could do it in our sleep, we packed it up and drove it back to Baltimore. How long did you apprentice? And for you and Arch, moving out there yeah. and working with Bob and his group, what was that? Well, after you saw you saw what they were doing, yeah. but what was that? As, as you started getting your hands dirty, when did you realize that this was really the right direction, and you were doing what you were supposed to do with that? You know, it's a good question. I would say that, for better or worse, once I kind of make up my mind, I think Arch is the same way that you know we don't make these decisions lightly. But once we do our internal kind of dil- or our diligence and say this is what we want to do, at that point, it's like okay, that's, that we're doing it. Like this is this is the path we we chose. You know, we. we feel confident in our ability to assess the, the opportunity. And, you know, so what, there wasn't a lot of, uh, 
once we decided to do it, we decided to do it. That kind of answers part of your question. But then being out there, uh, it, Bob's operation was Bob. Like me, he has wife there. You know, Jim had, had died. Uh, and even when Jim was alive, he was he couldn't really be involved anymore. He had a lung condition, so he couldn't be around the you know, the, the fumes from the still and the grain and all that stuff. So you know, Bob's operation was really Bob waking up at five in the morning and Bob making whiskey all day and selling bottles and this you know along the way and Bob shutting down the still at night and going in eating dinner and going to bed. But I'd say that when we get out there and started doing it, it just we just got more drawn into it deeper and deeper in a good way. But one thing we learned when we we're out there is that Bob and Jim had developed a wonderful uh, you know process to make a wonderful whiskey. But it was more like learning from Bob was kind of like learning how to make a cake from your grandmother. Okay. So, so Bob, you know, could say, "Hey, here's step one. Here's step two. Here's what I do here and here and here," and you could write a checklist, which is what we did. The good aviators, we made a checklist of, you know, here's how you here's how you do this. But if you ask Bob, how come you mash in at this temperature? He'd be like, "I don't know, man. It's what I do. You know, what do you want from me?" Uh, and that was Bob didn't really care to know too much about the science. He didn't have to. He he trial and error. He came up with a great thing, and that was. That hit, he was 72. He's like, I don't want to learn chemistry all over again, but I know this works. So we got, you know, to answer your question, how long to be apprentice? I was only out there for maybe six weeks, but Arch was there like four months, maybe yeah, four, three, four, maybe five months. But if, we're, if we were taking over a bigger operation, I think a lot more time would be needed. But, you know, this was the as simple as a distillery can get. So we kind of went out there. I think after probably two months, Arch probably felt pretty confident. Hey, we got this. We stayed for a couple more. Uh, <clears throat> but then... When we moved the business from Washington State to Baltimore, we didn't realize at the time, we thought we'd be open operating here in Baltimore three months later, which was, in hindsight, naive. Uh, and we had a place lined up and all that, but it's, it was still very naive. What were some of the hurdles or what was some what were some of the things that you thought you had in place that you didn't? The biggest thing was actually, uh, it was a landlord situation. So we were actually going to be, as the crow flies, uh, you know, southeast by maybe 500 yards, is this big complex that we were going to uh, at least 10,000 square feet of it. And there were some challenges there with the landlord. They're very good people. Um, it just, they didn't disclose certain things to us in a timely fashion, and it really put us in a bad spot. And they didn't do it on purpose. I just think it was just, it was an unfortunate circumstance and no hard feelings. But we said, hey, we can't, this isn't going to work. Then we found the place we're sitting in now, which was owned by somebody else when we first got here. That was a challenging lease negotiation. Finally, we were just about to sign it, and he decided, you know what, never mind, I'm going to sell the place. So the actually the landlord or sorry the uh, the landlord the former owner of the building his real estate agent grew to like us and felt really bad he kind of saw that we got left a little high and dry and he said listen I know a guy who actually might be interested in buying this building and leasing it to you and that's what he that's what happened that's what he worked together exactly and we couldn't be more thankful for that it was just he, he did that out of the kindness of his heart I mean sure he probably got a commission but like I think he did it because he just like felt saw we were trying to start a business and we're just getting setback after setback so really it was a landlord thing. The government regulatory side, that's a, it takes time, but really, knock on wood, we've, with the state and the feds, you know, there's been some frustrations, but for the most part, we've been able to navigate that. And people, generally speaking, have been wanting to help. You know, these people in these agencies have not, they're not trying to slow you down. They're just trying to do their job. And we've, overall, that hasn't been a big hurdle. It's just a landlord thing. But where that took me to in the story is that the, um, when it became readily apparent that we weren't going to be operating here 90 days later, we had, we got a big whiskey somewhere. So we found a distillery in Columbus, Ohio. I don't know if you've heard of Middle West Spirits. Uh, they're out of Columbus. So you should definitely check them out. They're awesome. And they had just taken, they had moved up from a still about the size of our pot still now, but a 300, I think it was a thousand liter still, so about 300 something gallons. And they just upgraded that to a 48 inch Vendome, you know, 50 foot tall column still with a bunch of pot stills alongside it. 
So they just dramatically increased their production. They went from doing mash-ins of 3,000 gallons to 6,000, 300 gallons to 6,000 gallons. So they had all this capacity, and their brand didn't need the capacity entirely yet, so they were willing to let you know, a select number of distilleries kind of gypsy distill, if you will, with them. So we established a relationship with Middle West. Where we, go out, we used to go out there four times a year, now we go once, and make our whiskey on there still. And they were willing to let us use our mash bill, our yeast, which a lot of distillers don't want somebody else's yeast in their building because, you know, Oh, yeah, there's that cross-contamination. Oh, 100%. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Probably, yeah, go up in the rafters and come back down. You know, right. They were confident enough in their procedures and, and whatnot to let us do that. And where that's all taking me is that they were like the master's degree level, of course. You know, it wasn't like we were just signing a contract saying, hey, make this for us and send it to us. Like We, we, were, we wouldn't have done it unless they let us go out there and, and work with them, which they were happy to do. So me too, but mostly Arch uh, and Jerry, who you met, our distiller, would go out there four times a year and just make whiskey with them for two weeks. And we could make more in two weeks on their still than we could on our little tiny still in months. I, I am picturing this cartoon of the United States and the the trip you're taking with the, with the <laughs> dotted lines as you're making your way now. So you go west. Yeah, it's like Indiana Jones. Right. Yeah, the airplane. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then you think you're all going to get all the way to Baltimore and er, you yep. have to stop in Ohio. And then so you stay there and you're going back and forth. Yep. I think what... I hear what you're saying is that really gave you an opportunity too, to kind of have somebody with you to learn the equipment from what that smaller yes. capacity was in Washington State to where you were making now a, a larger a larger capacity and larger distillation process. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. It was, um, and they, those guys, you know, in Middle West, they're chemists, they're engineers. Like they, they, they not that Bob. Bob's a very serious person and a very good businessman. And he made great whiskey, but. These guys were serious on the chemistry side of, of, of it. You know, they could, they could, they really knew that stuff inside and out. So that was like you know the master's degree course. Yeah, we're in Baltimore, so you baked with your grandmother. She taught you how to bake a cake, yeah. and then you went over to Duff's place, yeah. and he taught you how to bake a cake. Yes, right, exactly, exactly. Now you're distilling in Ohio while you're still working to get this location mm -hmm. going. Yep. And what was the official opening date for here? It was. I believe February 2017. Okay. Yeah, I'm almost certain that's when it was. Now, obviously, because yeah. we just celebrated almost your anniversary. Well, that's right, so. yeah. yeah. I think we were a few months late on it, but it was, okay. uh, it was, it was close enough to four years. Uh, and when we first opened it, uh, we were limited on what we could do. We could only do a tasting room. So uh, it, people could come for a tour. We could do a little you know, quarter-ounce samples. And then people could buy three bottles per visit. Um and it was great. We, we were thankful to have that. But what we didn't have was what a brewery has or a winery has is the ability to sit there and you can go in and sit down and have two, three beers with your friends and catch up uh, or, you know, a glass of wine or two. Here, it was much more of a come in, sample, and buy a bottle or don't and then leave. And it was good, but it really made it hard to, to deepen the connection with consumers because, you know, you'll come do that once, but are you going to want to go back next week and do it again? Probably not. You, I, mean, I, I wouldn't blame you. Sit there, do a tour again, do three samples and leave. So we wanted to have something where we can engage more deeply with consumers. And that's when we were able to uh, get a tavern license. So now we can do, you know, we do cocktails, we can carry other people's spirits, we can carry beer and wine. And that really helped us open it up to more people. Uh, a good example would be, you know, almost everybody, almost everybody drinks beer. So going to a brewery, you can take, you know, five of your friends, we'll go to a brewery, and most people are going to be like, yeah, sure. Uh, same thing with wine. Spirits are still a thing that intimidates certain people. So if you have a group of five friends with you, probably one of them might be like, I don't know if that's really spirits might think. So that one person not being into it, if all we could serve is spirits, would probably make it a no-go for that group. They'd go somewhere else. Now that we have beer and wine, 
you know, if you, you know, can appeal to, to everybody yeah, walking yeah, in the door in that whole group. If nobody feels left out. Exactly. If your uncle doesn't drink, you know, he only drinks beer, sure, yeah, get a beer then. You know, so it, it allowed us to uh, broaden our approach and have more events and things like that. Yeah. So with Golden, yep. you were distilling and producing single malt. Correct. And that is still true to what you do. Yes. You're producing other spirits right now? So all that we distill as a company is, uh, is single malt. That said, we do have our own blend of rum. Okay. Uh, and the rum is a blend that we import from the Dominican Republic. So that's a cool story too, if, uh, if you'll indulge me. You're, yeah. this is, we're telling your story. So we, so, want, we want the listeners to hear about Old Line and make, a, make this a destination for them. Well, this is actually, and it's gonna tie into the tasting too nicely because this will kind of all come together um, when you try everything, I think, is that, um, so, you know, a lot, you'll, you're probably familiar with distillery startup, you know, you're going from zero to having whiskey in the glass or in the bottle. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Unless you're yeah. doing five gallon barrels. Sure. It, 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 even then, it still takes time, right? I mean, maybe not much time, but it takes no. time. Um, so a lot of distilleries will make vodka and gin and things like that is that kind of their, their get up and go. And I, I wholeheartedly support people doing that, but we just, it doesn't really, that didn't resonate with our tonight because we don't drink a lot of vodka, we don't drink a lot of gin. So for us, we didn't want to make something just to make it. We wanted to make something, we wanted to fulfill the business need of cash, but do it with a product that we could be passionate about, that we would want to sit there and drink ourselves, and we like aged spirits. So the way we found to do that is that our, one of our board members introduced us to a couple down in Texas named Luis and Margaret Ayala. Their uh, company's called Rum Runner Press. Incredible people, um, and they are some of the most talented palates that I've ever met in any part of this industry. And they helped us over about a period of a year develop a, uh, a blend of Caribbean rum that just really, basically we dialed in exactly what the perfect rum for us would be. You know, we like Dominican style rums. They're slightly sweet, but they're not overwhelmingly sweet. Um, they're, you know, all the ones that we like are barrel aged. They have all the complexity of being in a barrel for five, six, eight, 10, 12 years. Um, and as much as I think rum agricoles from the French colonies are wonderful things, they don't really draw us in as well. So the Dominican rum, we, we determined pretty quickly was a style that we really, really liked. And then, you know, Luis and Margaret helped us figure out, they would send a sample after sample of blend after blend saying like, you know, what do you think? We would give them feedback. And, you know, after almost a year, I, I, was, I was surprised that they'd just tell us to pack some, you know, hey guys, <laughs> one, you got to pick one eventually. But they were just so patient. They're and, thinking, they, these guys just like drinking rum. I know, they're, right? They're sitting yes, on their right. back porch. <laughs> they're that's just right. drinking our send rum. Me a little more. <laughs> yeah. And it was, uh, we eventually got there and, and kind of were like, okay, this is it. And it ended up being a blend of anywhere from seven to 11 year old barrels. So for us, you know, our blend is at least seven years old. In the rum world, it's different. In the rum world, you can have a little bit of like a seven year old or a 10 year old in there and younger stuff, but you can still call it a 10 year old, whatever, you know, whatever the oldest, whereas in the whiskey world, as you know, it's the, it's the minimum. So we, yeah. do, we do the same convention for the rum just because we feel like that's the most conservative way to do it. So we call it a seven year, but it's really anywhere from seven to 11. Um, and so it fulfilled an important cash flow need while allowing us to put a product in the market that we felt was ours and we were proud of. And we always knew where this was going to kind of go was that the whiskey and the rum were going to are kind of a, in a good way on a collision course because, you know, like Belpini, Caribbean Cask is a whiskey that's very popular. People love it. We love that as well. And we always knew we wanted to do a rum finished whiskey. Like how cool to do that with our own, our own blend. That, that, no one else can get that blend. Luis will not make it for anybody else except us. And so what we do is we import that rum. Some of it goes right in the bottle and goes out, but more and more we're putting it back into our own freshly emptied single malt casks. And we're putting out a rum, which we can try here in a little bit, 
is a single malt finish rum, which is not the only one in the world, but it's rare. Uh, and it's wonderful. And then now we have these freshly emptied rum casks with our own blend that we can put whiskey back in. And have our, it just, it, it, it's very special to us. Um, so the rum has, has been incredible. That said, we are a we are a single malt company. The rum is a, a very important part of our business, but it is a uh, it is it is part. It is something that we're not trying to necessarily grow the rum around the country. Whereas the whiskey, we're trying to get it out there to different markets. The rum is more of a local thing that's very important to us, but it's contained, if you will. I, I in our perspective, I mean, for Dawn and I, and you're right to what you say. Hey, gin, vodka, maybe a white rum, and then they'll start doing uh, maybe a spiced rum. Yeah. Because you need to be able to fund the other things that you want to do and letting a barrel of whiskey sit on the shelf for possibly four or more years, that's a lot of money tied up. Yes. Now, what I can say though is that you 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 have taken that rum vehicle, but you've you've like you've talked about it's you're not, not you're not just gonna put out rum. You're gonna come and have a destination rum. You really are. I, I, we've commented before how much we've enjoyed your rum, and then what you're doing in the in the cask finishes with the single malt side and the things like that. It wasn't your intention to do single malts in the beginning. How have you come around to that? It, it seems like you now have, and based on what you're now putting out, you've really you've really just taken a hold of the romance of the single malt too. Yes, I thank you. Yes, agreed, and. Um... It from once that we were once we made the decision after meeting Bob that we wanted to take over the business and, and grow it with his blessing, um, the uh, we were kind of all in. So or like like for example earlier, sorry, it's the the draining of the ice machine. Uh, like we were saying earlier, we originally set out to make bourbon and rye, and you know Harch and I are sitting here having a drink on a Friday afternoon, just kind of kicking our feet up. Occasionally we'll still you know, say, oh, maybe we'll make a bourbon at some point. Maybe we'll make a rye. But really, what we don't want to do is take our eye off the ball. Um, and there's other wonderful distilleries in Maryland and, and other states, Pennsylvania, all these places that are making great rise. And, you know, for us, it could be a fun project, but it also could be a distractor. And we are very much, you know, in for a penny and for a pound on this, on this malt. And we just love it. I mean, I love that it's a new category. I love that it's, uh, it is, it's defined somewhat, uh, but it's really largely undefined. So one of the beautiful things about American single malt, in my opinion, is that you know, in Scotland, single malt is very stringently uh, defined, and for good reason, right? They've built this amazing industry, uh, and what they don't want is a, an upstart company to come in and do things a little bit too far off the norm and put out something that might be considered like weird or whatever, and then it might hurt the category. The category is so important, both to that country and to whiskey consumers that, you know, you know so for example, it can't be less than three years old to be a, a whiskey in Scotland. Uh, a single malt has to be produced on a pot still. You can't use a column still in Scotland. All these things are, I think, they were done for very good reason, and it makes sense for Scotland because they had this massive industry to protect. We don't. We, we have a, a tiny nugget of a single malt industry here, and one of the benefits we have is that while there are some parameters, they're not as stringent. We can use a column still. Uh, we can age in virgin oak, which I guess the Scots can too, but they really don't. But we can age in virgin oak. The parameters to which things are distilled are a little bit less stringent. You know, as far as we can, you know, riff a little more. So it's a nice time to be in this industry because we can take this amazing single malt concept and we can just put a little bit more of an American spin on it. And the example we use often is think of like the in the beer world, the IPA. So the IPA is old. You know, for those of you who you know, listening, you may not know the IPA is a British 
construct in that they would send beer to the, to the soldiers in India and they would add additional hops to it because hops helped preserve it for the voyage. The beer would spoil on the way. And then Americans, you know, if you ever had a British IPA versus an American IPA, they're very, very different. The American one is this kind of very citrusy, floral, hoppy kind of bomb in some cases, whereas it's a little more subtle in, in the UK. But Americans took the concept and did what Americans do. They just made it what they thought was better. Um, and now this IPA has become this massive thing in America. What the single malt producers here in America, like Old Line and others are trying to do, is take something that is amazing and we would never want to change. Scott, single malt scotch is amazing and we respect it tremendously. But we want to do something a little bit different. And the rules here allow us to do that. I think uh, that's fascinating. And because there are not, as you talk about, there are not a lot of single malt distilleries yet in the United States. Some distillers who distill other things are producing a single malt. You've decided, as you said, you're going to keep your eye on the ball, and this is you know, your main focus. Do you feel like you're going to be part of – because I think at some point, like we talk about – like you talked about Scotland, um, like you talk about Ireland. I mean we had Bimber Distillery out of uh, the United Kingdom and talking to them about at some point with their single malt, they're going to need to kind of construct – those confines yes. about what is, you know, like, like, you know, Kentucky does for bourbon sure. or Tennessee does for whiskey. Um, do you feel like that that's going to be something down the, down the road? It's that, actually happening now. Okay. Um, it's called the American single malt commission. So, uh, to your point, um, it would, there were kind of two camps and I was on, excuse me, I was on kind of one side, Arthur was actually on the other. Uh, I was on the side of, it's not really defined right now. Excuse me. American single malt isn't really defined, right? Malt whiskey is, uh, which is a very broad term. Uh, that's defined in the uh, U.S. regulations, but single malt isn't. So I was in the camp of if it's not regulated or it's regulated, if it's not defined too strictly, like, let's just keep it that way. Uh, and Arch disagreed, and I've eventually come around, and, and I agree with him now, was that, yeah, like, it, but there should be some definition because then you could have anybody making a, a quote-unquote single malt and it could be this goofy, weird thing, and it could you know, make the category look bad. So I think where you know, Arch and I have fallen, which is generally speaking where most of our fellow American single malt producers have fallen, I think, is that you know, we want to define it, but not quite as strictly, again, as in Scotland. So right now, I think the definition that's kind of looming, uh, they're trying to get the government to, to take it, is, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it can be distilled in a, uh, in a pot still or a column still, which is a difference from Scotland. There's no age limit. Uh, you could put it like a bourbon. You could, you could have a one-day-old bourbon. It wouldn't taste very good. It would meet the criteria. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So note the three-year age statement isn't necessarily a thing. And there, is, there are some limits on the barrel size, but they're pretty liberal. So there are some parameters being put in place to protect it as a, as, as a kind of blooming category. So yeah, that, that is in process. Whether it'll happen or not in the next two, three, four years, I don't know. What do you think is important or why do you think it's important that parameters are started why, – why to create why, – why create parameters around that single malt industry in the United States? Yeah. So that, again, originally I was thinking like why would you? Like you know, just like let us do what we want and, and have that allow for creativity and whatnot. Uh, and again, I think really it's because uh, – probably a big reason is that single malts typically cost more money to buy because they cost more money to make, right? So malt of barley is a very expensive premium grain. Uh, much more expensive than buying you know, corn, uh, more expensive than rye. And it's just, you know, so it costs a lot. So it's going to be sold for typically a premium. You know, we sell ours at, you know, probably one of the lowest priced American single on the market 
for a couple of reasons, but it, it, it's an effort to do it. We have to take a hit to our margins to do it. Uh, and we do it for reasons we can discuss later. But um, I think that these distillers are saying, hey, we've got to put this thing out on the shelf. Sometimes these things are going for you know, $70, $80, $90. You know? And if you're not defining what that is, protecting what that is, what's to stop somebody to put out something that meets none of the criteria that I just mentioned, but because it's unregulated, call it a single malt, and they're selling it for $25, and it's really neutral spirit with some flavoring, right? That's an extreme example, but I think people are going to invest so much money into making a product that they're very proud of, and, and the time to age it, they don't want somebody else to come along with something goofy. Yeah, the, the structure, what the structure does is it creates a high-quality product, Yes, ensuring that the lower-level products don't taint the water, so to speak, 100%. of what the industry is really trying to do. Correct. And 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 the and, and the voice that you're trying to really put out there for your single. You, you said that much better than I did. <laughs> yeah. Now, how are you working with sourcing your grains here? Are they local? Are you finding local malted barley? Are you dealing with local malt houses? How is that working for you? So well, we we've had dialogues with some local malt houses, and at some point we probably will do more with them. But right now, we've yet to find a compelling reason to do anything different than Bob and Jim did. So the malt house they used is in, um, and we still do use, called Great Western. And they're in Vancouver, uh, yeah, Vancouver, Washington, so right outside of Portland, Oregon. Um, and they've been at this for 150 years or whatever it is. So they, we just love the relationship, love the quality. And really, when you break it down, like most malt, most barley for malting comes from the northern latitudes anyway. So if it's getting malted in you know, St. Petersburg, Florida, that's great. But it's still, the grain is still grown probably in Canada. Um, well, I'm not saying that's a positive or negative thing. I think that the malt, the malting location doesn't necessarily mean that the grain came from that area as well. Um, so with the consistency of quality and the price we can get from Great Western, we've yet to find anything compelling to make us want to take the risk of doing anything different. Because um, I, th- I don't think you want to change anything that's going to impact your flavor profile right now either. A hundred percent. Where I think we would potentially do it, and I'm sure we will potentially do it, is when we start looking at, um, like right now our, our mash bill is largely unchanged. Uh, we do barrel finishes, different barrel aging techniques, those sorts of things. But for the most part, we have you know have our same pale malt and our same crystal malt that we've been using since the days of Bob and Jim. We eventually will start to riff with that a little more, and when we do that, that's probably where we would look at you know there's some malt houses up in PA um, that we would, I think there might be one in Maryland uh, that we would look at. But if it, that would be something that wouldn't be our flagship product because that flavor profile is well, you could do a limited release, one hundred percent, and yeah. see how that's re, you know see how that's received, right? One hundred percent agree. And yes. that could give you some direction to say, wow, we've had such a great amount of feedback, we can start moving in this direction here with that yes. too. Agreed, agreed. Which is exciting, and at this time, four years old. Where are you with the juice that's coming out of Golden? Mm-hmm. And even what you've done in Ohio, where are you with the, the age? The, where your age? I mean, do you, I think when we were here the first time, Arch showed us some barrels that you still have maturing from Golden. Those are they've been emptied. You can try some of that today, okay? Um, which is fantastic. Uh, that emptied at the first time we emptied. There were three barrels. We emptied them in twenty. What year is it? Twenty nineteen. We emptied a portion of each of them at eight years old, but we kept some whiskey in each of those barrels for another year, so that continued to age in the barrel. And then we emptied the rest of them last year as a nine-year-old. Which for an American, excuse me, which for an American single malt is among the oldest. I mean, there's a, I know of a 10-year-old that was released in New York, and I think there's maybe one 15-year-old that was released in like Nantucket, 
or something. But for the most part, most American single malts are much, much younger than nine years old. That's exciting uh, for was, you was, and where where you are in the industry. Oh, there. it was very exciting. It was funny. We uh, reached out to a bunch of uh, like the whiskey wash and things like that when we were releasing it. And one guy got back to us. And I was describing it as what I thought was the oldest American single malt released to date. Say, hey man, I hate to break it to you, but just a week ago, oh no, <laughs> somebody cracked a barrel. Somebody, and I was, it was a, someplace up in the, like Finger Lakes is selling, put out a ten year, and I was glad for them. I'm glad for the. It's good for us in the industry. That these, these, we're getting age on these things, but I wish they had done it like a week after we released ours. <laughs> Do you feel? And, and we're talking single malt now, which is not a large conversation yeah. even in the whiskey world in the United States for an American created product. Do you, do you feel some sense of responsibility there? Yes, I think that uh, I do, and I feel like our peers do as well. And so, because the category is so new, it, it doesn't take. If, if let's say there were a bunch of American single malts on the market that were were not good, you know, and that's not good for us, right? People would say, "Oh, I never had an American single malt." Well, maybe there's a reason they make it in Scotland. They move on, right? So, the fact that we and our peers think all take it very seriously, both as business people, but also as that we're kind of cultivating this new category. So, you know, if somebody goes and buys a bottle of, you know, Westland or Stranahan's or Balcones, you know, they're all different flavor profiles in Old Line, and of course we're biased towards our own, but I'm very confident that they're getting a well-made product, and that's a very good thing for us, because I want them to, I want them to like Westland, I want them to like Stranahan's, I want them to like us too. You know, we all rise with the tide, um, so we don't view ourselves as working against one another. I mean, you know, as evidenced by the commission that we're working on, as evidenced by, you know, we're doing a joint tasting with, I think it's Balcones, Westland, the old line, and maybe one more distillery, maybe Wayward out in Denver. We're all teaming together to do a, a joint thing for a whiskey club because why not? Like, you know, we all have different flavor profiles, we all have different value propositions, but we're all in the same category together. So we, I think we do all feel a responsibility to not screw it up because you really only have one shot. I mean, if, if people start thinking Americans can't do this well, they're going to move on. They're going to just stay with their bourbons. We want people to stay with their bourbons. We want them to work us into the rotation. It's, here's the thing. It's a full compliment. I mean, you talked about in the beginning how rye whiskey is now coming of such prominence yeah. to the American consumer, where rye whiskey for many years was that just one lost bottle on the bar that nobody really gravitated towards. So you're talking over the last four, five, six years that rye has come to prominence, and everybody can have room, but if you're making a really great single ball. There's that, there's that, hey, I'm going to drink with my buddies. We're going to do a bourbon today, a single malt tomorrow. We, we can sit down and talk about this and now have so much more really to enjoy that's Agreed. on the market. Agreed. It, it, gone other days, but just say that a, a different way. Uh, gone other days were like, I'm a McAllen man. All I drink is McAllen. Or, I mean, not gone other days, but the, the, the people who uh, kind of ascribe to that way of drinking, of having that one brand, that's all they do. I think that's typically the old generation. And, uh, I, you know, People like us, our generation, are looking at things much more like there's just so much to enjoy. Why not? So, um, you know, we don't, we're not trying to steal customers from anybody. We want to just, I, I describe it as just being in the rotation. If they have, you know, maybe six or eight whiskeys that are their go-tos, I, I hope Old Line might be one of them, right? Or, 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 or five to seven. <laughs> or five to seven. <laughs> Let's make sure they're filling their, uh, their, their, their stock and, and their bar well with Old Line. Yes. Let's do this, Mark. When we come back. Let's sit down and talk about your whiskeys. I have a whole bunch of other questions to go over with you. Um, but this is um, just something that uh, in talking the, the single malts, this has been fabulous. So I can't wait to come back and taste them. Thank you very much. Brewskits, beer, grain, dog, bones, brewskits. Your dog will go wild. Brewskits.
Beer Brain Dog Bones, a healthy alternative for your pup. Brewskits are all natural and made in the USA. Visit brewskit.com. That's B-R-E-W-S-C-U-I-T.com. We're back, and we're going to go on this tasting journey. We've really, Mark, you've set this out for us. Um, so I'm excited. You brought four expressions of what you do here. What do you want to taste first? What are we going to taste first here? So what we have uh, to start is going to be um, our cask strength expression of our flagship American single malt. And I think the cast strength, uh, it shows, uh, we have an 86 proof, which is you know our kind of baseline flagship expression. The cast strength comes in at about 122, 123. And for me, the cast strength is, uh, is, is the best expression for, of, of that flagship line, uh, simply because you get so much more complexity and uh, just flavor at that higher proof. So if you don't mind a little little extra bite, which I don't think you No, will. not at all. Uh, we'll, we'll start there. So so what? So through Bob and everything you were doing in Ohio and for you and Arch, what what's your taste profile? What's your vision? I mean, you talk about, you know, you're doing a cast strength and you have a, a, a lower proof single malt, but sure. what's your vision for this? So thank you. Know, that's a good question. So I'll take that from a couple of different angles. One is, um, yeah, I mentioned earlier, actually, that it ties into the price point discussion, actually, is that we want to be, and we feel we are, a bourbon drinker's single malt. So we don't want to be a bourbon. We love bourbon, but that's bourbon. You know, But we want to be uh, a single malt for the American palate. Uh, and the primary way we do that is uh, aging in virgin oak. There are a couple of other things we do as well, but that's the primary. Uh, and that has a dramatic effect on what comes out of the barrel. So, uh, you know, when you nose a bourbon, you know, Vanilla and caramel typically come to the fore. There are a ton of other things in there as well. And that typically is what you're going to get, I, I think, with, with our malt as well because of that virgin oak aging. Um, so, again, we want to be that, that malt whiskey for the bourbon drinker. Another way to put it is malt whiskey for the person who doesn't think he likes or she or she likes malt whiskey. Uh, a lot of bourbon drinkers will try this and they expect not to like it because they see single malt and they have, you know, maybe s- traditional single malt scotch isn't their thing. Um, and they're very surprised that this draws them in. Um, what do you think it is, and why? Why do you think they're surprised? I think that well, part of it is I think that even though so many single malt scotches are not smoky, their the perceptions among among so many people is that scotch equals smoke, and smoke is very divisive. Uh, you love it or you hate right. it, right? You even have your smoke camp, or you have your I'm not drinking smoke camp, 100. percent And right. I think a lot of bourbon drinkers fall into the I don't want that smoke, even though there's a whole world of scotches that don't have that. I don't think that's necessarily readily known to a lot you know, to to many people. So part of it is they see single malt, and I think they already have perceptions on what it's going to be. Even sometimes people will say, hey, I'll get a lot of smoke on this. I mean, I might get a little smoke from the malt, from the char, but really the malt isn't peated. Um, but I think that they see single malt, and even then the brain starts to say, like, this is what I should be tasting. But I think that uh, – it, it, I must be off because I don't think that. <laughs> well, you know, well, you, I know, know, yeah. you, know you know whiskey better no, than No, but I never had I, – I love that perspective because I never had that perspective per, perspective of my own – but you're in the front lines, so you're hearing it from people, oh, and I find that interesting. It is, and it's, you know, when we first started this, you know, I can't tell you the number of times I was at a tasting where, you know, some guy my dad's age would come in and say, uh, oh, what are you making, scotch? Well, no, it's an, it's an American single malt. I'm like, oh, well, that's scotch. <laughs> okay, sir. You know, no, it's not. <laughs> but, you know, the, the kind of guy wants to tell you how it is, you know. Yeah, but there was this perception, so, so the, for the first two, three years, a lot of what we were doing is just... And it still is, but definitely was more so in the first two, three years, is educating people on just what it is they're drinking. You know, not like a bourbon or a rye where people have a general idea. 
um, before they sip it. Um, so really, that's been it's been a big education. And if we were making bourbon or rye uh, as opposed to American single malts, I wouldn't be surprised if our sales to date, our sales have been great. We've been very happy, but I wouldn't be surprised if they were even higher because I think that's a little bit of an easier sell because people understand it. What I have no doubt about is that this is the place to be for the future, for us for the future. So, you know, while the first few years, there's a lot of, you know, education and really grinding it out. So people understood what this was. Um, but the category, now that it's getting recognized, I think we are in a very good position that we've you know, built the brand and we're kind of growing the category very, very well. And, and now you can have, it's interesting because we talk to different, different categories, distilleries, cideries, meteries, wineries, even breweries at that point. But as people get used to and educated about something, now you can have more sophisticated conversations. 100%. Right? Yes. I mean, you're not now having that conversation, oh, what's a single malt? Now you're talking about the characteristics of the single malt or, you know, look, I I, I can tell you. And one of the things that we enjoyed our first time here, the, the nose and the depth that you, this is something, and I think maybe for what you've told us about your vision for you and Arch, that you had this bourbon rye mind. Yeah. And that goes into the nose of what you're producing. Because you want to have that, not just, hey, I'm just drinking bourbon, but I'm experiencing bourbon. You, now we're experiencing a single ball. Sure. This is something that I, I can just sit here. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. nose yeah. this all day. You don't even have to drink this if you want to drink this. But sure. the enjoyment is really, I'm, I'm watching the credits roll through or the, 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 um, the, the overture to listen to what to expect on your single ball. Mm-hmm. The, the first thing I, I got on my nose was there was a... When you pour this, there's an extreme amount of cocoa. I yeah. mean, I, I got that vanilla. I got the you know the other characteristics from the oak there, but it's really opened up to so many different things. You get some fruitiness, some cherryness to that. One hundred percent agree. For me, uh, you're you're picking up a lot of things that I pick up on. Like the cocoa actually comes from. Um, I mentioned earlier we have the two types of malt that we use. We have the pale malt. And then the C120, the crystal malt. Do you guys know malts a bit? No, but I mean, I don't ever assume that just because I think I do, I'm not going to be enough. that. I'm not going to be that guy. This is oh, I know this is yeah. a scotch. You know, fair enough. I, I always learn stuff. I, so I think the, sometimes uh, you shut up when you you learn and listen versus saying I know everything. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, well, so on the on the crystal malts, when they malt the barley, you know, they soak the grain. They soak the grain. They trick the grain into sprouting, and then it's dried to kind of stop the process. And then until we take it, you know, mill it and do the mashing process here. With a uh, crystal malt, or also known as a toasted malt, it's dried out at a higher temperature. And what that does is it some of those sugars, you know, in the malting process, you're converting, you know, complex carbohydrates into simple sugars, which is what you need to ferment. Some of those sugars will caramelize. So if you were to, t- if we had the grain right in front of us here, um, and you tasted our pale malt, it would taste kind of like, uh, like grape nut cereal. Uh, so pleasant, grainy, not very sweet. Um, and the toasted malt, the crystal malt, would taste like raisin bran flakes. And then what after the mash-in process and the fermentation and all that distillation, that carries through is that is that dark chocolate cocoa is exactly what you're getting. And then uh, and at 122 proof, mm-hmm. uh, this it, it, the first wave there is a lot of ethanol on here. Yeah, but this really has settled out. Oh, it's, it, and it, I think, yeah, agreed. And I think it definitely, I think it drinks, at the end of the day, I think it drinks 10 points below what it is. You know, so this is 120, what is it, 61.8 with public math here. It's at 123.6, <laughs> <laughs> is that right? I hope. You're uh, there. All right. It, uh, 
it, I think it drinks in the low teens, you know, the low hundred hundred teens. And as far as like the, the, the burn factor and whatnot, it's really mild. And it's it's lovely. My go to at home with this is just you know one plain little ice cube from the freezer. You know, I, I don't mind ice and whiskey. You know, some people don't like it. One ice cube in there and let it settle out. Maybe a two and a half ounce pour, and I'm and I'm happy. It has deep chocolate notes to it on the palate. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get a lot of dryness from the oak, but you do get that pleasant. I know that we don't want to say it's smoky, but there seems to be um, almost like when you drive past a barbecue joint, yeah. you can smell the barbecue, but you're not overwhelmed by it. I, I think I, that's where I, the smokiness comes in. I, I can see that. Um, you mentioned earlier, like, like cherries, and you know, I sometimes think of apricots or things like that, but. Malt, for whatever reason, uh, fruitiness, that stone fruit is a very common characteristic of malt. And, you know, as we said earlier, if you taste the, the grain before we milled it, it would taste like, you know, grape nuts and raisin bran flakes. Nothing fruity about it. But the way those, you know, the, as it uh, ferments and then distills, you know, the, the chemical compounds that make a cherry taste like a cherry, well, some of those things exist in that, in that solution and they come across. And it's pretty amazing. As this sits on my palate, I've had a little bit of it. You get a lot of the grassiness that settles in. Sure. Um, I, I, I was just drawn back to my childhood where we take like these long um, pieces of grass and just kind of, we, we would just walk and just chew on them. Yeah. And I don't know, that sounds weird, but that's, that's kind of where that sits for me. You just, you just took me back to my childhood. The, um, agreed. And, and what that's for me, I, what I think is that's probably more from the, um, the pale malts. The pale malt is kind of our, is the workhorse, right? It's, it's got a higher conversion of uh, starch into sugar. Or, or I should say this. It has a higher convert, uh, available fermentable sugar. So when you, when you toast a malt for the, for the crystal malt, that you get that really deep, rich, dark chocolate, kind of dark toffee character. However, uh, you get a lower alcohol yield because the sugars aren't as convertible to alcohol. and The yeast won't eat them. Uh, you have a lower alcohol yield is what I'm getting at. The pale malt gives you that really nice canvas, uh, the biscuity notes, kind of the grainy notes you're talking about, and it gives you the alcohol yield as well. So that pale malt, which is what, 90% of our mash bill, that's the canvas, and then the C120 is just really what differentiates this from a lot of other whiskeys. That's just delicious. Yeah, thank you. Thank I, you. It, yeah, I mean, just so much there to just enjoy. It's a nice sipping, uh, just enjoyable single malt. And I think this ties back to what we talked about that if you're going to be an example for your industry, you know, you really want to put out a quality product and you really are. Well, thank you. You really are. I appreciate that. Now, I guess my question is, because we're going to talk about this and people are going to say, how do I get some of this? So it depends where you are. Where you are. Okay. Uh, right now, uh, we are, the markets that we are in, uh, so Maryland, D.C. and Delaware, we consider, you know, even though they're three separate markets, we consider the, the home market. Uh, we're in New Jersey, um, Massachusetts, New York, and Colorado. Uh, soon, we hope to be in Illinois. Uh, but for other states, uh, if you go to our website and you you know click buy a bottle, it, uh, if you're not in a state that carries us, it will likely take you to a retailer in Washington D.C. We have some retailers down there that uh, are allowed to ship. They will ship. Yeah, we can't ship out of state from Maryland, but retailers in D.C. have a lot more flexibility. So if you go to the website and search through, you know, there's there's certain ways, or people can reach out to us, you know, info at oldlinespirits.com. And yeah, we, we try to find a way because we very much appreciate when people have enough interest to want to reach out. Now, is that an expression that 
is now you can you can sell that way or what what would people find more on their shelves in some of those states? It, uh, it would be the in those other states it would be this the cast strength and the eighty six proof expression and then uh, in places like New Jersey and Colorado where we're starting to get you know get some more traction we're going to start releasing in limited amounts the barrel finishes like the sherry cast finish we have an upcoming port cast finish that's coming out this fall oh it's delicious. Um, so we we, we can we know. can pull the tent out of the car and we'll just set up a tent right, outside. That's right. that's right. That I just my vision of what that must be like, and and as you taste through that right now, just waiting for the port to just put its little stamp on the, the, the juice there. Well, just and to your point earlier with the stone, you know, the cherry, you know, the note, the stone fruit note, just that kind of deep, rich, raisiny stone fruit note of a port just works so well with this. And we uh, I like it even better than our cherry finish. Um, I think it's I think it's great. So it's we, like it's like saying I love all my children, but this one, but this, yeah, this, right. this one I'm not a fan of right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, right. This one's been misbehaving, right? Um, so it it's, just hasn't uh, been producing this well. That's, that's right. right. Uh, We're gonna bat him seven or eight. C's. This one's pulling in A's right now. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that because the sherry cast is wonderful. It's just for me the um, the, the tawny port. Draws, I can draws only me imagine that right. the Oloroso is wonderful, but the tawny port just for me just hits hits a. It resonates really strongly. So yeah, so we're we're but we're growing the company, and uh, but if you're you know anywhere within you know an hour of Baltimore, you know, it's a pretty good shot. If you're within two hours of Baltimore, this should be on your bucket list well, of places that. to come. I mean, seriously, I mean, we we drive down from PA and just outside of Philadelphia, so it's not that hard of a drive. And Baltimore and crabs and you know single yeah. single single mall catch a ball game. I mean, for better or worse, the Orioles are uh, really not good, so you can get tickets to ball games <laughs> really easily. I was I went to the game last night. <laughs> What's next? All right. You know, I, I, I'm going to switch the order up from what I originally thought. And we're going to go right now. We're going to go into uh, we're going to go to the rum next. Okay. And the reason we're doing the rum is, like I mentioned earlier, we have this wonderful rum that we import from the Dominican Republic. And it stands alone amazingly, but also its most important role it fulfills is that it generates seasoning barrels, rum, you know, ex-rum barrels for us to finish our whiskey in. So I want to touch upon that, uh, the rum, and then we're going to go into the... American hey, you're you're the conductor. And we're going to end with the we're going to end with the golden edition, which is I think just a nice way to end with that. You're you're, so. you're we're taking you're taking us on your journey. All right, so that's so okay. I'm going to give you. Uh, oh, you're going to do the same. Glasses, no, I'll right? move this one there. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. All right. All right. So the <laughs> rum to, to to recap. Four there for you. And this is a Dominican style rum. Yes. It's a, well, it's actually produced in the Dominican Republic. Okay. Um, not just a style, but it's produced it is it is DR rum. Yep. So we get it from a blending house down there. What their what their role essentially is they aggregate barrel, you know, any with whiskey or rum, whatever, you know, everybody's trying to plan their demand for five, six, seven, eight, ten, twelve years. So you you think I want to have this many ten year old barrels in twenty twenty one and you have to make that decision in twenty eleven, inevitably either over or underproduce. So the role that these one of the roles these blending houses fulfill is they will buy excess barrels from Rugal and Cruz and all these other places that maybe have too many. Um, and then they will be made available if you know who to, if you know the right people, you know the right made, people. Yeah, I don't know the right people, but Luis, thank God, does. <laughs> so Luis and Margaret can go down there, and they and they go down periodically, I don't know, for three, four, five times a year, and they will import barrels for our blend into their facility in Texas, which is where they blend. Um, and then we get it here, and we put it again. What you're drinking now, we put back into our American single malt whiskey barrels for another year. So this is, I said, seven to eleven years. I guess you can call this eight to twelve years. So age another year in our here in Baltimore. So the only ingredients in this, so for, the, for those who may be less familiar with rum, you know, rum, there's two really big categories. There's uh, age and unaged, right? And then in the unaged category, you have like clear rums, like, you know, like most of the Bacardi line, 
You have spice rums like Captain Morgan, Sailor Jerry, Kraken. And all those are very, very well-made products, but they're generally speaking designed as mixers. When you get a barrel-aged rum, what you're, in my opinion, trying to do is take all the complexity that you can get in a wonderful whiskey or brandy or anything like that uh, and do that with a rum. So if you put a good distillate in the right kind of barrel, in the right environment for the right amount of time, you're going to get amazing results. So what you have here is molasses, water, yeast, and oak. That's really all it is. And the amount of flavor is just astounding from just those four ingredients. Uh, there's no sugar added. Uh, a lot of rums, rum agricoles never add sugar. So like the French colonies, like from like Martinique and places like that, um, they don't add any sugar at all. Most rums that come from other parts of the Caribbean do add at least a little bit. Uh, this has none. Uh, it doesn't need it. Uh, we used to add a tiny bit um, just to round it out, and we realized we took it away, and like it, it doesn't need it at all. So there's none. On the nose, I get that molasses. You get a little bit of that molasses, but not that heavy burnt marshmallowy kind of a thing. But I also my nose keeps telling me root beer. I can see that. Okay. You know, it's funny for me. What, what was Rita uh, jumping out at me when you were saying that was more of a citrus? Or like a note? cream? I, I feel like it's like a cream soda meets a root beer on the nose. Well, it's the vanillins from the oak, and it's the caramelly distillate that kind of give you that almost like butterscotchy kind of. Uh, our other, uh, the non-single malt finished rum has a real butterscotch character. Yeah, I can see that root beery note, and then uh, I get like dried citrus, uh, maybe dried pineapple, things like that in there as well. But this is, I mean, you can sip this all day. Uh, it's 100 proof. Like everything else we do, I think it drinks very, uh, very easily, so it probably drinks closer to like an 85 or 90 proof. But it's, it's a wonderful rum. We're very, very proud of it. We like that it's not. We, we wanted to do with this. You mentioned our ask for our vision on the whiskey. Our vision on the rum was a, uh, like we want to do for the malts, a, a bourbon drinker's malt. This, we want to do a whiskey drinker's rum. And not that rum drinkers don't love it, they do, but this is the rum that shocks people because people will come here and they'll try it, and they'll, we'll hear so often, I didn't think I liked rum, and you know, this is amazing. The way you're treating it, like you said, I want somebody that's going to drink bourbon or whiskey to appreciate the same way while they're drinking this. Mm -hmm. There's, the way you describe it, you don't, come about it as it having a lot of sweetness to it, but there is a sweetness note to this. Oh, 100%. And it's just not overwhelming. But it also has a, a viscosity to it. it the, the, the single malt is a little bit thinner on the palate, and it, it evaporates, and that may go to the higher proof, it's too. A, yes, agreed. So this sits on your tongue, and you get a lot of things playing together. It's, it's very rich. I taste of vanilla, yeah. definitely. 100%. It, um... Yeah, it, it's, a, it's very, very rich, um, and I think with, to your point about the malt, I think you'll, when, you, when we go into the uh, Caribbean rum finish single malt, I think you'll notice the mouthfeel would be actually a lot different. Um, I, I love the mouthfeel of the cast strength, but to your point, as you come down from 122 proof down to this would be 100 proof, um, a lot of that kind of like rich, buttery mouthfeel uh, will become more apparent. And you get a lot of the burnt, as you sip this, you get a lot of the, more of the burnt, the, the, the toasted sugar notes yep. to what you'd expect from a rum. The kind of Mayard effect. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, Mark, you've been open now. You and Arch have come together. You've been open for four years. How has COVID affected your business over the last year? It, it's been, well, I'll preface by saying, like everybody else, I wish it didn't happen. But to answer it objectively, it's been good and bad. Um, and by good, um, I mean that, you know, people were, you know, people were, we built our brand 
um, at liquor stores more than we did at restaurants and bars for a couple of reasons. So we built it off-premise more than we did on-premise, and that was not expecting a pandemic, but when the pandemic hit, that ended up being a very good thing for us. That that's where we had built the deepest relationships and people were, that's where our product was pulling. So down here in Maryland, where, while we're still a new brand, we're much more established than we were two, three years ago, that it really, that the sales at, at liquor stores actually, at Q1 was tough, but Q2 through four, we did really, really well. Where it really hurt us, so we overproduced, or sorry, overperformed uh, compared to our expectations in Maryland last year, uh, where we uh, really had a challenge was in the markets where we were newer. So I mentioned New Jersey and, and Colorado. How do you treat and grow those those markets? Uh, so do you do taste? I mean, what's the plan to do some tasting? The tasting is like the it, the blocking and tackling. The fundamentals are like liquor to lips, um, and uh, you know, tastings are a, a primary tool for every brand. You know, and we're no different. So the, the, ability, the inability to do those was a challenge. We did you know some virtual tastings as you as you know. You uh, and if you haven't checked out Old Mine's virtual tastings, you and the collaborations you do, you do really great tastings. Thank you. We, we try. I mean, you open up your tasting box and you're getting like twelve different for that, things, for that event. Absolutely. For that event, yeah, I was like, yeah. how am I? I'm glad I'm home. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah, that, that was it. That was that was twelve for that event. Uh, our standard like old line only tasting will be four, but we actually it's fifty ml bottles. It's a, it's a good deal. You get it. dollars. It's a good value. It's what a good you value. taste. Yeah. Um, and you have one coming up right now. I mean, I guess local to Baltimore. You, you don't ship those out, do you? Today we ha- yeah the legalities of that are tough, um, but we have one Friday, so if people are able to come you know order it and pick up the kit. Uh, yeah, we have one Friday. I need to figure out. I guess what we can do is. I'll come to, we'll, we'll, we'll satellite this out. I'll come down and pick up tasting kits and we could do some stuff with uh, some of the whiskey groups out of Philadelphia too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're actually doing a tasting with the Philadelphia Whiskey Society here pretty soon. Good. Um, which is with cool. Alex and... Uh, Alex yeah. and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Alex Chang. Yeah. 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 Good. I'm glad he found you after I told him about you. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I owe you one for that. So the, um, where were we uh, on the... Um, we were talking about... Oh, the other... The, the marketing the and just how, how you... It, especially with COVID because, yeah, I mean, I can go into my liquor store or, you know, in Pennsylvania for us, I mean, they shut all that down. Yeah. And the only place you were able to obtain, you know, beer and wine and, and spirits were at the local distillery. So the, their their markets exploded with, yeah. with, with pickup bottles. Uh, I believe it. Yeah, it was a little different here. Um, but, uh, but we did have tremendous support from, I mean, we have amazing supporters uh, and people who love what we're doing. And, and that was, it, that was, it, it, people went out of their way to come pick up bottles and whatnot, both because they liked it, but also because they were being supportive and we, we deeply, deeply appreciated that. But as far as the markets out away from here, you know, what we've determined, we've figured out is that we've always kind of known it, but what we've really uh, put a finer point on is the person, the people that we need to be engaging with the best, the most are, I mean, are, are you guys, right? Like you have the whiskey aficionados and we'll sometimes use the term whiskey. No one has ever called me a whiskey aficionado. <laughs> But you're here and you care. <laughs> but thank you, yeah. Mark. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll use the term whiskey nerds, too, in a very I, positive I, I, way. Yeah, I like the whiskey nerd yeah. part. Yeah. And um, it's the people that will really strive to find new things, to understand what they are, to find the ones they like, and to and they tell and they tell their friends. So with the new markets, we found a couple of things. And, and one of the big things we do is we have a barrel program, a private barrel program. So for those who may not be familiar, that's where – a group or a retail account comes in and they you know, sample different barrels and they'll pick the one that they really, really 
life because each barrel has that a very you know. Now these 50, 55 gallon barrels that you're doing on this size, thirty or fifty three. Okay. Have both the thirties are about four years old and they're beautiful. They're they could go for another year if they needed to, but they're beautiful. And then our fifty threes are uh, approaching five years old and they're really, I think five to six is going to be their sweet spot for a lot of them. Some will let go a lot longer. But uh, so the accounts will come in and they'll buy a barrel and then we'll package that for them with their logo on it. And the beauty of that is that, well, great, you sold you know, 20, 25 cases in one fell swoop, which is wonderful. But more importantly, you know, we don't want the whiskey to just get sold and sit on the shelf. We want it to move, both for us and for the person buying it. And with these barrel picks, the accounts, you know, they, they're putting their stamp of approval on that barrel. So if you're an account, like a good example, there's a you know, drug city pharmacy here uh, in, uh, just outside of Baltimore. They're amazing. You know, they they pick great barrels and people know it. So when a barrel goes up there, people will buy it just because they know George picks good barrels. The Nash Liquors in New Jersey is a great example too. You know, Rich and Bill pick great barrels. So by, by just by virtue of them having it there, it's them tr- communicating to their customers, this is worth a try. And those barrel picks have been a way for us to get buy-in from the retailer and then hence get the pull-through from the consumer without the ability to do tastings. So it's a... It's a challenge because it's it's it's, it's a, an operationally intensive thing to do to hand pick a barrel, empty just that barrel, package it, ship it, you know. But it's worth it. Um, so that's been a big way we've tried to engage during the COVID, and we're going to continue to do that even when things continue to get better. Was when you look back, and I'd like to hope that we're working our way at the end of mm-hmm. the pandemic. Are there things you can look back on and say this was actually a benefit for us, or this is where we really saw a positive light out of everything that's happened and how it's affected not only the relationship with your customer or maybe your business. What has kind of stood out from that? I think I think the biggest thing for me is that it forced us to reevaluate almost everything we do as a business. And in many ways, we determined, hey, what we're doing is the right thing or maybe minor adjustments. It wasn't like we changed everything, but it forced us to take a hard look at the business from every angle. Uh, based on the new reality that we were all dealing with. I think that was a very healthy thing. And I think a lot of good things uh, came out of that for us. I think our, our 2021 strategic plan was far better thought out and executable than our 2020 plan because we took just that much of a deeper, harder look uh, because we had to. The world has changed rapidly. You know, the COVID situation, it was a ca- I don't think it caused certain things, but it was a catalyst for an acceleration, like direct-to-consumer sales. You know, that was already happening. That was not going to not happen. But the speed at which DTC became a big, such a big part of the market over the past 12 months, it, it, what, what happened in 12 months, I would have thought would have happened in four years. So, again, it forced us to really look at how we operate our business, and uh, I think that was a, a healthy thing for us and for any other business who did the same thing. What's the third item that's on yes. the line of pork? All right, so we're going to go back to the whiskey, and I know it's kind of odd to go whiskey, rum whiskey, but because... No, but I think I understand now why you did that. Why, yep, exactly. Yep. So what we're going to go to now Now, is, the, the rum is only sold here. Is uh, that correct? No, or? We, so we sell it uh, in uh, accounts in Maryland, D.C., and Delaware. The only way outside of those areas, if you're in you know, New Jersey or Massachusetts or New York or Colorado... Really, the only way to get that rum on the shelf at the store is via our barrel program. So accounts will buy a barrel of the cast strength, the first one we tried, and then they have the option, if they want, to fill it with rum, and then six months to a year oh, later, wow. they get that. Oh, wow. That's a great benefit. And then they have the option, if they'd like. And at any point, they can say, no, we bought the barrel. We want to empty it. Send us the barrel with our name on it, and we are more than happy to do that. 
but so far, almost all of them, once they've tasted that rum and then tasted the malt, the, the whiskey finish in the rum barrels, almost all of them have said, yep, put rum in it, and then empty the rum, yep, put whiskey back in it. So we call it the progressive barrel program. I think that's so fascinating. It's great. It's, it's, it's a differentiator. It's, it's, uh, we, we love it. It was actually Arch's idea. And, uh, Again, these are other reasons why. When you start to look at the single malt industry or the single malt um, you know, sector of whiskeys, this is a lot of stuff that you're able to do or you're doing now that really creates a lot of interest and excitement. I think so, yes. Yes. And, and so well, to, that, to that end, what we have here is our uh, American single malt whiskey finished in Caribbean rum casks. And you know, this is not just any Caribbean rum cask, but our own blend. It's very, very, this, it's, it's took years to pull this together and we love the result. So I'm going to pour you some of that here. This is at 100 proof. Was this a vision? I mean, we're going back to Golden a little bit for, yeah. for Bob and, and was it John? Uh, Bob and Jim. Jim. Bob and Jim. I mean, was this something that they were doing too? Or they were just st- sitting just that one single malt? They, they were malt. Um, they produced some peated, which we've started to do again. It's still aging. Um, and they did uh, apple brandy. Um, See, I'm a peated guy. Yeah. So oh, but before <laughs> yeah. you leave, let's pop open the barrel. Um, and I, think we, I think we did. No, oh. we didn't. We didn't last time. No, we didn't. <laughs> you say you didn't. Cause no, no, because I remember we didn't. Because Arch pointed, and he says, over there, yeah, peated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, if you guys have time, when we wrap up, we'll, 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 we can pop up. I'm holding time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so th- they, that was so, the um, apple brandy was, was delicious. It just wasn't something that was really in our plan. So we kind of let that go by the wayside. And also the way Bob was doing it was he would trade, he had some trading. Oh, that's right. He would get free apple, I guess apple wine, uh, almost like a... Like an eau de vie or something like that? Uh, or well, he would make it into essentially that. Okay. But he would get a tote of this fresh pressed apple, you know, fermented, not a cider, it was more of like an apple wine, I guess. And he would distill it and give some of it back to the producer and then the rest he would sell. So it was just a sort of like cashless deal. Um, so we couldn't, I mean, we weren't going to ship totes of apple, whatever, across the country. Uh, so we, we let that kind of go by the wayside, although it was very good. Um, but yeah, the, the finishes weren't anything they got into yet. Uh, so the finishes are something that were, were what we brought, one of the things we brought to the business. Uh, the rum finish, one, we always just love, you know, the, all the notes in the malt and the notes in a, in a really good aged rum, I think, really complement one another very, very well. And also, you know, being two Navy guys, you know, rum's a big part of the culture. Um, so we kind of like that tie into our past, you know. Uh, you know, rum's been a Navy thing for as long as there's been rum, right? So to keep the passengers and the sailors at bay mm-hmm. so that they made sure that, you know, they kept an even keel. That's nobody, right. Nobody rebelled. You had rum. That's right. And if the rum ran out, you're in trouble. Right. Yeah. And uh, if it didn't light on fire, it wasn't high enough proof. Navy strength. <laughs> Navy strength. So this is our first iteration of the uh, Caribbean rum finish, and we were very, very pleased with it. We have a, a, a number of barrels out there aging uh, now, but we, we this is our first run, and we were very, very happy. This is the first, we, we, we've, we've gone through the other single malt. This is the first one, and, and I'm going to ask you, because again, this is your development. It's, this is the first one I'm getting some, some hints of pepper notes on the nose. So the, I, I, I get that typically uh, on the cast strength as well. Um, and it's, there's a, a term, I think it's eugenol might be the term. I may be wrong on that. But kind of like a white pepper spice, uh, which is the way I describe it. It may be different for you. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's primarily from the oak, uh, as I understand it. Okay, but that's it's interesting because I got that more on this one. Uh, I get I get it more from... on the cast strength. Okay, but again, <laughs> each, each palate's different. You know, 
I had pizza for lunch. Maybe that affected it. <laughs> that, that could be. You had, you had pepperoni on the, 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 the palate. That's right. But uh, for me, I'm not getting it right now as much. But typically when I nose this, I get uh, almost like, like a lavender. Uh, like, like Not a floral, like a gin floral, but you know, more like a rich, sweet lavender floral. Um, so, so maybe, you know, to, to transfer that, it's, it's, there's an herbaceous nose to this. Yes, but again, not like but not a, not heavy. It's but, not just, but yeah, not heavy, not um, not not gin like, you know, which I mean, gin no, not at all. Um, but just kind of yeah, like, like a like a sweet floral note yeah, for me. Uh, and then the, of course the vanilla and caramel is there. It's always kind of ever present. Now this was the one that we talked about that it just it's very thin and light on the palate. It comes and it goes, and you kind of get hit with these bursts of flavor and. I think what the rum cask does is it just smooths and mellows all that out mm -hmm. to just a pleasant, just earthy, I'm not going to say sweet, but then you get that, you want to know that there's rum there, but it's just this imparting of, it just, it just kind of brings everything together. I, I, I yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. It's almost like, you know, it's probably going to, I'm probably going to fail in this description, but it's like, you know, you listen to a song and like, there's almost always a bass guitar in there. Now, whether you can really, if it's at the forefront or not, if you listen for it, the bass guitar is always in there, and you're like, and you don't realize how much that adds to a song until you're looking for it. Sometimes, I feel like that's kind of what the rum does here. Is it isn't necessarily in your face, but if you kind of just think about it a little bit, you can see how it helps everything else shine better. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> that was awesome, and I, I think that that's been explained to me. You, the way you just did that, there have been times when I've had that experience, but when you compare that to some sort of musical theory, mm -hmm. that's perfect. I'm glad that, that just popped into my head and I, uh, I never used that before. See, this is why we I'm just, glad it didn't flop. this is why we just talk and we just speak about it and it helped, we, you know, you just help to understand. Look, when you sit down and I think this is wonderful about the craft spirits industry and in the movement and the, 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 that single mark, single malt part that you bring about that we could just sit down with a bottle and, and just do this. you just talk. Yeah, agreed. You just you just enjoy it. And look, somebody like me, or you'll you'll talk to somebody, you know, next week, they'll taste something and they'll smell something on this, or they'll have an experience that you're like, wow, that's been there the whole time and I never picked that up. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, somebody the other night, what were we? We were doing a virtual tasting, and I I'm blanking on exactly what the comment was, but somebody said something. And it came from a person that if I had to look at everybody on that Zoom call, she was probably the most the in my mind the most unlikely person. To kind of wow me, it, me, you know, she's like an elderly woman, and I, I, I just didn't think she was gonna. We she, are gonna she, get such hate mail now. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm, I'm admitting that I had a bias, and I, I, I didn't think she. And she blew. She said something that just blew my mind, and I'm like, wow, I misread you. Like, I, God bless you. Uh, and she, she just said something. I'm like, you know what? I've never thought of it in those terms. I, I wish I could think of what she said, but uh, all I could say was, you know, touche. Like, I, she nailed it. Like, it was, it was some note in. I think it was the golden edition. That she said, I couldn't put my finger on it. When she said, uh, it wasn't Manuka honey. What was it? Oh God, I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I can't think of it. But I was just blown away. We're like, wow, I've been trying to put my finger on that for you. Now I've forgotten it, so shame on me. All right, so <laughs> you did a perfect setup for that. Okay. Now we can work our way into the golden edition. You keep pouring that out. You're just going to make a nice blend for yourself. Uh, honestly, I'm not kidding. I'm actually going to drink this. this yeah, no, this, it's going to be a nice blend. That's, that's intense. We have found <laughs> that we have, especially from doing the virtual tastings that I'll save a little bit from every one of them. 
and then I'll blend it just like you it's are. Fun, yeah. And you get such an amazing experience. You become your own blender. Oh, you know, 100%. Your yeah, own yeah. master blender of, of different things. Because you can't really do that on a tasting, you know, as much. Where were we? We did um, with uh, Emily later, we did Jefferson's, and she had three different, and we just we mixed them all together. And at the end, it was like, that's the best one. <laughs> we, yeah. When we blended our own, that was great. It, uh, we, Arch, uh, what did he do recently? He, uh, he was messing around marrying uh, just barrels together. You know, when we, when we uh, bottle, we'll bulk batch, like most distilleries. We'll take however many barrels we need. We'll, we'll batch them together. If it's cast strength, it's basically ready to go. If it's 86 proof, we'll proof it down. But when you do that, you kind of dampen out the differences between the barrels and, and the consistency. The bigger the batches, generally speaking, they can be more consistent over time. But he was messing around with just taking two barrels, both produced by us, both single malt, uh, and just kind of just doing, hey, this one and this one, this one and this one, these different combinations. And one combination, it was just, it, 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 the whole was far greater than the sum of the parts. It just, everything came together beautifully. It was just a ditch, rich, deep, chocolate, mellow, even at cast strength, it drank so easy. And it was like a, like a cocoa bomb. And it was just so wonderful. And he wrote down the barrels he used, and without telling our, our distiller, who then didn't know to save them, he and used them. them in the next batch. <laughs> it wasn't Jerry's fault, he didn't know. No. And it was just like, in our time, I didn't really know how good these were going to be. We were drinking these on the, we lived in the same neighborhood, we were sipping this thing on the street. We're like, man, this is good. And I was like, well, it's gone now. But, so it, that, but it's, it's part of the beauty of it. Like that is. They're, they're, they're fleeting, these things sometimes. Well, it's like, that, it's like that, that one flower that blooms, and it's only there for yes. a short time. And after that, it's gone until next year or whatever, <laughs> yeah, right, right? right. Or never again. That's or never crazy. again. That was a never again. <laughs> well, speaking of never again, another great segue. Yeah. The Golden Edition. So, you know, as you know, Golden Distillery was our, uh, our predecessor, the guys we learned from. What you're about to drink is the exact same mash bill, same yeast, uh, distilled. Is there a specific yeast, by the way? I mean, there's two types. Is there a proprietary yeah. secret on the yeast that that's what really helps you to convey what you're doing? It is. It's proprietary, and in in in, like most distilleries, well, the bigger ones, because by this point, probably cultivated their own. But like 99 percent of craft distilleries, we get commercial off the shelf yeast, but there's thousands of kinds available. So yeah, the, the two that we use and the ratio we use them. That if we had a trade secret, that would be it. Okay. Um, but. Yeah, it, so the yeasts are very important because, you know, if you could ferment with Fleischmann's yeast, but it's going to not taste right because that's designed for bread, not for whiskey or whatever. But so same grain, same yeast, distilled. This is actually, believe it or not, uh, single distilled, unlike most of everything else we do is double distilled. We don't single distill anymore. Bob and Jim uh, did that. But they would take about 100 feet of copper mesh and shove it up the still head, and it acted as a reflux agent. And... Every distiller we would share these samples with, we'd say, believe it or not, that's a single distill. They'd be like, no, you're lying. Like, I'm telling you, I've seen it done. And it's whatever, whatever Bob, like I said, Bob just figured out his way and it worked. But it's, uh, this was aged in you know, 53 gallon barrels for about four years on the West Coast in the very mild Pacific Northwest, you know, very, very much like a Scottish type, but, you know, damp, 75 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit would be the high in the summer typically. Lows in the winters are probably somewhere in the mid 30s, mid 40s. So not the aggressive highs and lows you have here in you know Maryland, Pennsylvania, Kentucky. Um, so just as the the barrel expands, contracts, and the way just everything interacts, it's a very different result on the West Coast than it is here. And then we age the rest of the time uh, here in the Mid Atlantic, essentially. So you know the hot summers, the 9,500 degree days, the cold winters, and 
that has a very different effect. So basically, this is kind of not replicatable, uh, or at least not reasonably. The end result is amazing to me because it tastes so dramatically different from the cask strength. And really, fundamentally, it's not that different. It's just largely just aged in a different manner is, is, the, is the simplest way to put so it. So it really tells you how important aging, mm-hmm. location, the barrels you're picking or where you're, where you're kind of setting them out and letting them just sit down and do what they need to do. A hundred percent agree. Um, and for me, like, right, like today I'm getting a ton of honey, which I usually do. So I, get I was getting honeysuckle. I agreed. Yeah. I mean, that. that was just very yeah. pleasant to just nose. The stone fruits there, tobacco, yeah. you know, all, all these wonderful things. And uh, it's, you know, once this is, I don't know how many bottles we have left, not many. Might be down to like 40. And when it's, so Arch and I are going to set aside most of the remaining. It's probably going to go like, you know. Put aside, put aside for the, the, uh, the, the founder's reserve, if you will. But uh, it's just wonderful. And we love that it's a link to Bob and Jim. You know, we actually, when we released it, we wanted Bob to come out uh, with, the, you know, COVID. Uh, the first release, he couldn't make it out. I forget why. And the second release was during... Was it during COVID? It was. That's right. Because Bob's words to me were, uh, I survived, uh, what is it? I survived, you know, the Merchant Marine in a year in Vietnam. I'm not going to die on an airplane to come see you. So, <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he's, he's awesome. Yeah. So, anyway, we'd love to have him out here to, uh, to drink some with us. With, so you know, I guess my question is now, what does, you know, Bob, what, what, I'm sure you're sending him bottles out. We do. We, we do send bottles out. We, we chat. I would like to say it was more like every other month. It's probably more like every three, four months. You know, I'll, I'll chat on the phone. Um, but uh, wonderful human being, and I think he's just—he—he he will never not be busy. He's one of those people that you know that he, you know he had owned like nine restaurants. He'd, he'd sell one and buy, you know start another and sell it again and blah blah blah. And then he, when he was doing the distillery, he was also importing shrimp from like Thailand. Never once saw a shrimp that he imported. But he just was on the phone the whole time doing it. He—he—he's always doing something. I mean, he's, I know when we moved the distillery out of his barn slash garage, he took his Corvette, put it back in there. I'm sure he's working on the vet, listening to big band music and drinking Coors Heavy and uh, and the bottles we send him. So, yeah. I'll tell you what, on this, you get, I, I love, for me, there's this tobacco note on the palate mm-hmm. that I'm just really enjoying. Yep, 100%. The, 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 like, almost like this this barn feel of the tobacco aging that I just get to experience, which is nice. It's uh, at the hundred proof. It's uh, again, easy drinking, but I, I like that um, everything's just a bit more pronounced than it otherwise would be. Uh, not much of a bite to it at all, but it's just a, it's a special whiskey. It's, it's we're, we're really, really proud of this. I almost feel like if you like rye, this is a rye drinker, rye drinker single malt. Is uh, that is it? I mean, you, that's you, my character. You mean the, the golden edition, yeah, the golden edition. It's funny. I feel more uh, that way about the cast strength. Okay, but, uh, but I think what the common thread I think is that is that kind of that little bit of white pepper spice that you know. I'm getting so much more spice at yeah. the end of this than I was on your your interesting. Yeah, I get it more in the cast strength, but yeah, each each palette is different. You know what? Art switched the bottles on you, and you have no that's idea. Right, that's right. <laughs> I lost my sense of smell 20 years ago, and I just make it up as I go. Yeah. <laughs> Kidding. But that's uh, no, that's okay. That's, yeah. um, is is that why the, all the notes are on the back of the bottle? So you uh, can, I need those. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I put my hand here written down. Yeah. But, I have uh, a question. I mean, you you have such a rich. Uh, we talked about the the history of you uh, in the naval the naval navy idea. 
other than the ready room, it, it doesn't really transfer as much to what you're doing. Yeah, it's, okay, agreed. It's one of the things that Arch and I, and we're, we're trying to get out of that shell. It is on your website. You have a great website. Thank you. That Thank is you. awesome. Yeah, that's actually Arch in the plane, the, the video at the beginning. Um, we tried to do it in a way that we felt comfortable because as, as people, Arch and I aren't uh, the kind of pound your chest type, you know, so, you know, look at me, look at me. I was in the Navy. You know, that's not really our style, which I know isn't what you're espousing, but some brands do that, and that's fine. It's like, you know, like Lead Slinger Bourbon. I'm sure they're great guys, but they're, they're, that is, their thing is, you know, we're vets, and we make whiskey, and that's great. That's what they built their brand around. We were very careful on it because, one, that's not our personality, and, two, we didn't want to uh, bring the brand into a realm where it, I, uh, it turned people off, you know, whereas for every person that might get drawn into that, there might be two that don't. So we tried to do it very subtly. So like the, you know, the, the, lo the logo, the circle waves, that's the, the essence of our brand is bold stories. So for us, our bold story is you know, flying jets in the Navy, quitting our jobs without a plan and starting a business, moving to the West Coast and living in this guy's you know, guest house, which used to be a chicken coop, uh, learning whiskey. You know, that's our story, but we wanted, but you know, we didn't want to put an aircraft carrier or whatever on there because that wouldn't resonate with many people. So the circle waves is designed to evoke that sense of adventure and excitement that anybody can look at and, and you know, relate to. Now, to your point, we could be a little bit more overt about it, um, and we're starting to a little bit, but in ways, like for example, we're doing a, a collaboration with Fisher House, which is like the veterans version of Ronald McDonald House, uh, and we're doing a, uh, about to roll it out here soon, uh, where you know, we're gonna be doing uh, you know, stacks in stores where $5 from every bottle goes to Fisher House. We're trying to do things that feel good to us to support things we believe in and then draw in our veterans heritage in a way that we feel comfortable with. We don't want to do it too. There's only, there's only so far we're willing to take it because we don't want to like, uh, cheapen it, but we don't want people to buy the whiskey because we're vets. We love it. That's part of our story. We want people to know it because we're proud of it, but we want them to buy it because they like the whiskey. So where did the name old line come in? Uh, so old line, which most people out of Maryland don't know. And even many people in Maryland don't know it is the state nickname. It's not a very well-known nickname, and it's a reference to the Revolutionary War. So uh, the short version is uh, George Washington had the Continental Army largely located in what is now Brooklyn on, on Long Island, uh, and it was a point in the war where the British were still you know, pursuing a peaceful solution to the conflict. You know, you know, we were countrymen, right? They, we were part of Britain, and they viewed us as such. And at a certain point, Admiral Howe uh, determined that, okay, time for this to be done and started landing troops. He saw a weakness in Washington's position on Long Island and was landing troops. And as soon as he started landing, Washington realized his weakened position uh, and started to evacuate the army across the East River into Manhattan and then up to safety. Uh, but he needed to buy time. So the Maryland, one of the Maryland units he had was very well trained, very well equipped. So he used them to hold off the British, to hold the line uh, while the rest of the army escaped. And there was like 95% casualties, but they did their job and they held off the British long enough for everybody else to escape. So you know, his quote was, you know, what, what brave men I must lose today. And it was, um, or something to that effect. And but he called that unit because it held the line. He called that unit his old line. And because they were from Maryland, when statehood came, it became the old line state. So we love it because it's a, a great story, but outside of Maryland, it just sounds like a cool whiskey name, you know? I'll tell you what, this is exactly why I love sitting down. I, that just blows my mind. Now, my mom can now listen to the podcast because we, we brought history into it, nice. so she'll be interested. Does that, thank you for, for bringing that. Yeah, of course. <laughs>
Mark, when now you're opened outside, we you got this great space out there. I know you're doing the comedy nights, right? Yeah, we are. Yeah. Um, you're bringing in live music. You're bringing in a, so what can people when they come down here? You're not doing as much on the inside, yes, but. What can people expect when they come down here? What's some of the activities and the events you have going Well, thank you for asking. So um, to your point, we're, we're using that courtyard uh, as much as we can because it's a very safe place and people feel comfortable. It's a nice, beautiful It's a great place. space. It's a great spot. Thank yeah. you. And so we do, yeah, comedy nights are great. Uh, this Sunday, we have the Craft Whiskey Roundup, which you've, you know, you did the last one that was virtual, where we invite other distilleries into the, to our distillery. Um, you know, this time it'll be Sagamore Spirit, Baltimore Spirits Company. We're going to go through a... a basically a guided tasting amongst these brands. It's a way for us to invite peer distilleries in to... Which will be nice because when this podcast aired, it was yesterday. Uh, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. Hey, you uh, missed it. You missed it. But there'll be more. We'll do probably two more this year. And it's a way for us to partner with other distilleries, you know, because we all, we all work together for the most part. We, we, you know, 99% of us work together, not against each other. Um, and then, uh, yeah, any number of things. We like to host like whiskey clubs. So whiskey clubs that want to come down here, we warmly welcome them to schedule a time and we'll do private events and tastings for them. So, uh, any number of things, you know, just, uh, you know, keep an eye on our Facebook and our Instagram. It's at old blind spirits. And, uh, there's always something going on. So. You've got some great food vendors, some food trucks that come out. Yep. And you know, one of the things you touched on when you come down to Baltimore and I know people think of the inner Harbor and crabs and whatever, but there's this, you know, you've got some great distilleries in the area yes. and you mentioned some and, You've got some really great breweries in the area. I mean, this is really a nice destination to to reframe your mind to come down. I mean, you got you got the Guinness, the, yeah. you got the Guinness Brewery not too far from here. And there's so much to do if if you're you know a, a distilled spirit person or you're you know you want to you want to try some beers. This is a great spot to come down to. But I would tell people come here first. Well, I, I, well, I appreciate that. It's a uh... We, and we appreciate because you're really not that far off a of 95 anyway. It's so easy, yeah. 895 is right there. It's uh, it's to to your point. It's uh, I think Baltimore. I'm not. From, I'm from Boston originally, and if yeah, I've been here what, eight, what years. I'll be here. It'll be nine years in June that I've been here. And ten years ago, if you told me I live in Baltimore, I'd call you crazy. I didn't know. All I knew was what I read in the newspaper and the wire and all that. And my sister-in-law and brother-in-law moved here, and we fell in love with it, and we moved here too. And uh, it's an amazing city, and it's a, it's a very underappreciated city, I think. Baltimore's the kind of place, I believe, that no matter where you go, you feel like you're in a small little neighborhood. A hundred percent. You feel like you're – look, it's it's a larger city, but you still feel like you're in a really nice community. No matter what neighborhood you go into Baltimore, you get that feeling. I think there's so, a yeah. warm feeling. There's a nice feeling. And this is what you and Arch are doing. You're bringing about you're, – you're representing that Baltimore spirit in your own way with Old Line. I appreciate that. We try to. We want this to be a, a place where there's no pretense. You know, come as you are. Just be here. We're happy you're here. And that's to your point. And, very much, and Philly, I think, is a lot the same way. It's a, it's a, it's a city of very close-knit neighborhoods. It's a city of corner bars. It's a, it's a, a T-shirt and jeans and ball cap and watch the game. It kind of crowd. Uh, and I love that about both cities. Um, and uh, Baltimore is a smaller version, but you know, it's, I think they have a lot of similarities, and it's a great place. And we wouldn't do this any, you know, honestly, I couldn't have done this anywhere else. If, if I were in Boston at home, I couldn't have afforded to quit my job and and do this. But Baltimore, the cost of living it is more reasonable, and it, we could take a risk. And the city warmly welcomed us, and, and we're we're not going anywhere. We you know, we love it here, so we're we're here and we're staying. Well, I'm glad you're here and you're staying because we Dawn and I, this is our fermented adventure. 
We are grateful, and this has exceeded our expectations. Just sitting down and talking to you, we couldn't wait to come back to Old Line um, and really get a better sense of what you're doing. So thank you for your time today. Thank you. Both. And uh, you know, like I said, there's a port finish coming out. There's a whole yes. bunch of other stuff. Really, if you're within two, two and a half, three hours of Old Line in Baltimore, make this a destination. Come on out, visit Mark and Arch, and uh, every, your staff is great, but we really appreciate your time today. Uh, likewise, thank you guys for being here, and it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.